Blessed are those who mourn for their sins, who are heartbroken over the condition of their heart. The sinful nature of their heart can be paralleled in beatitude number six. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then blessed are those who are meek, who are gentle, who put themselves under the control of God. That gentleness then begins to spill over into their relationship with other people. And number seven was blessed are the peacemakers. So I I love the symmetry that we see here in the Beatitudes. And today I want to talk about those three Beatitudes, those three characteristics that are really the fruit of the thriving Christian life. So let's look at those more closely. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And verse 6 begins this way. I mean verse 7. Sorry, we'll go to verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Now, I know that mercy is a spiritual gift, and a lot of times people say, well, I I, I don't need to be merciful because that's just not my spiritual gift. Uh, Well, actually, that's not how it works. Uh, Those who have the spiritual gift of mercy might find showing mercy more of their nature, but that does not mean that nobody else has to be merciful at all. What is mercy and how does it connect to being poor in spirit? Well, let me take your mind back to the first of this series when we talked about being poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit means that I acknowledge that I have a spiritual need, that I am spiritually poor, that that on my own I cannot live the way that God wants me to live. On my own I cannot take care of my sin problem. It all depends upon the merciful nature of the Heavenly Father. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had confessed their sin and they had tried to cover up their sin by by sowing fig leaves together. It was God in His mercy who did not demand their lives that day, though that's what the proscription had prescribed. Instead, God in His mercy allowed a substitute death to satisfy the penalty for their sin. And as they left the garden in banishment, because there are consequences even to forgiven sins, they were clothed with animal skins rather than the fig leaves that they had improvised for themselves. The act of accepting a substitute and then clothing Adam and Eve Folks, that's the first act of mercy that our God shows us in Scripture. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, He is holy. But He is also merciful and gracious, abounding in love. Folks, we even catch that character in the Old Testament where many people have misunderstood the character of God, thinking that He's this angry God in the Old Testament and somehow He's softened up by the New Testament. If you look at the uh, scripture that Pastor Andy read to us today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I don't think it's mere accident that Paul goes back to the Garden of Eden, back to that first sin when death entered into the world through the one man, Adam. We have a connection with Adam, don't we? Adam sinned, and Paul argues that now we all have that nature. We all sin. But I'm here to tell you that we have a second kind of connection with Adam. And that is the mercy that God showed by sparing Adam's life through the death of a substitute. And as he mentions there in verse 22, Christ Jesus, 
in him, in his death on the cross, his substitute death for our sins, there is now a promise of life, the escape from the penalty of sin, God's mercy. One of the greatest definitions of mercy that I have run across is this. Mercy is the power of love overlooking the offense. Isn't that good? The power of love overlooking the offense, not dealing with us as our sins deserve. Now let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God's mercy is that great, that his love is that great, that he can overlook your sin? Do you really believe that none of us are righteous in and of ourselves, that we need Jesus, that we need the Holy Spirit? Do we, like Paul, understand that nothing good lives inside of us? Are we in agreement with that? There are, those are great questions that we must wrestle with because if we do believe that, then how are we supposed to then treat other people who have acted in sin and ultimately deserve to have the fool strangle out of them? You know the people that I'm talking about. You have people like that in your life. People who are not perfect, people who fall short of God's grace and His glory all the time. If we have not understood the concept of there but for the grace of God go I, the fact that I am a sinner and I also need forgiveness, then you know what's going to happen? Satan's going to get into me. He's going to tempt me to stand in condemnation of other people in a false sense of superiority, thinking poorly of you because I'm not as bad as you. (laughs) See, there's two categories of relationships that fall under this idea of needing to to have mercy been shown to them. The, The first one are those who really are sinful. And we forget that we are too. And so we look down on them, but they need mercy. A long time ago, I heard a comedian talk about how out on the road, when you're driving, that there's really only two kinds of drivers on the road. There are idiots and there are maniacs. You understand this, right? Because you'll get, behind, you'll, you'll get caught behind an idiot that is going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit, and you're going, come on, you idiot, and a car zooms past you, and you go, Maniac! Because somehow the, the, the way that you're driving is perfect and everybody else, they have the problem. There was a book that came out, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago called Unoffendable. Unoffendable. And uh, I went through that, a study with that with one of our elders. Um, and it's a pretty uh, simple book to understand. The premise is that Christians should be the least offendable people on the face of the earth. And yet, that's not the case. We get things in our craw all the time. We get so mad, we get so offended that somebody would have stepped on our rights. And yet, the author is saying, Jesus asked us to give up our rights. And what's more is we've been told in the Bible that we all sin. We should not be surprised when somebody actually sins. Because, well, we were told that all of us fall short of perfection. So why should I be offended at your sin and then turn around and do something unloving towards somebody else? That just doesn't make sense. There's a part of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6 that typically gets overlooked when it gets preached about or, or taught or even read in church. 
Jesus finishes up the prayer. By the way, not like we know it. If you look at Matthew 6, Jesus does not end the prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Check it out. It's not there. Okay? No, no. The, the way that the prayer ends is a little different than what we would say. Well, well there it is in, in verse 12 and 13 of Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We got that part down, right? We, we know that part. The very next two verses say this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Good. Let's stop there. No, 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 no. There's one more. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will... Huh? Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, that's not supposed to be in there. Because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's not very loving, Jesus, when you tell me that it doesn't matter what my attitude is towards somebody else, you've got to forgive me. You know, that sounds like a spoiled brat to me. I don't know about you. Jesus told a parable about a man who had been forgiven this huge debt, a, a debt that he could not pay. He should have gone to debtor's prison. But he pled for mercy, and his creditor showed mercy and forgave this huge debt. But then that man who had been forgiven turns right around, and he demands repayment from another man who owed him a smaller amount of money, relatively small debt. And when that man could not pay that small debt back to the man who had been forgiven, the man who had been forgiven gets incensed and throws this other man into prison. And when the first man who had forgiven this great debt heard of this outlandish behavior, he said, that's it. And he reverses his forgiveness of the debt. And he says, you're going to go to debtor's prison until you've paid back every single penny. Why? Why does Jesus tell that parable? I believe it's this. Because when you have been shown mercy, when you have been blessed enough to have your debt of sin forgiven. Folks, that should change your heart. That's what God wants. He wants you to be so grateful that what He has done by forgiving you just permeates your whole being. And you begin to then reflect His mercy that He has shown you to other people. So that's one group of people that need mercy. Those who don't deserve mercy at all. And we show them mercy because we didn't deserve mercy at all either. And yet God still shows mercy. This, the second group of people are those who have been forgotten. Uh, the, the ones who, uh, they, they've been just kind of left behind, outcast of our society. I, I want you to think. I, I know it, many of us have been gone from gathering together for a few months. And you're coming back and that's great. But are there people in our church who are shut in and lonely and infirm? You know, the mercy comes into play for those people as well, right? Tim Keller is a a Christian author. He's a pastor. And he asked his church this question. He said, what if 50% of the people of this church forgave everybody? Never paid anybody back a wrong done. Never avenged themselves, but only repaid evil with 
good. Then he went on and says, what if half of us were also quite willing to go to the mat for other people and to meet people's needs, whether they are social needs or, or psychological needs or spiritual needs or economic needs. And we did that with extravagant efforts to alleviate those needs. He asked, what if we were a community like that? Do you know what we would be? We would be the church because that's all the church is. Folks, we used to be really, really good at this. And sometimes these sermons make us feel good or encouraged or inspired. Sometimes we need to hear kind of a hard truth. I think because of the pandemic, and we can use that as an excuse, or our schedules are so weird and we don't see people much, I believe that we've fallen down on this. Me too, by the way. Me too. I, I got a phone call from a, a gentleman this past week. It was a great story. Two years ago, he started coming to our church. Why? Because he had a neighbor, a member of our church, who was in need. And all that this man saw was people from our church going and helping this person out on a consistent basis. And this man had been a part of a church for many, many years. He goes, I've never seen Christians do that. I've never seen a church actually do that in a practical way. He said, I want to be a part of that church. And so he began to come. And he called me up this last week. He said, Trey, I haven't seen anybody over there at my neighbor's recently. It's like everybody's kind of forgotten that person. And I went, ouch. Oh yeah, well, but, but it's the pandemic. No, 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 that's an easy cop-out, Trey. Well, when you find out that there are people who are hurting and struggling, and we just go, well, I, I haven't heard from them lately. I, I hope they're okay. Folks, that's not the kind of mercy that God is wanting us to show in our lives. Because mercy can be one of the most powerful weapons we have in this world because the world does not act in mercy. It does not reach out to those who need to be reached out to and does not show forgiveness for those who need forgiveness. So that's the merciful. That's the merciful. Number two, who else is blessed? Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, purity of heart, like I said, is kind of the counterpart to mourning over our sin, the sinful state of our heart. And and we understand what what that sin does in in our relationships with God and with our relationships with other people. And, And we eventually get to a point where we hate that sin and what it does to us. And so we want to be pure in heart. And some people, their transformation happens just like that. You may know of people who, once they came to to Jesus, once they were baptized, they changed immediately. This last week, God brought to my life, back into my brain, a song that I had heard back in the 70s. Now, I didn't realize that I actually was probably grown up on country music. I didn't think I was. I I was one of these guys that said, ah, country music, yeah. But one day, a long time ago, I was watching TV late at night, and KTEL Presents came out, a little, little, uh, little uh, advertisement of KTEL Records, presents the best of country classics. And I realized I probably knew 90% of the songs on that album. I'm going, oh, well, that makes sense. That, yeah, okay, that, that explains a lot of things. Okay, 
Well, one of those songs um, came to my mind this, this week, and I don't know why until last night when I was at Cowboy Church and I was preaching this sermon, I realized, well, that's why God brought that to my mind. Have you ever heard the song, They Baptized Jesse Taylor? Yes, in Cedar Creek last Sunday, Jesus saved a soul and Satan lost a good right arm. They all cried hallelujah when Jesse's head went under, because this time he went under for the Lord. And the verses talk about how Jesse literally changed every part of his life once he was baptized, once he surrendered to the Lord. His relationship with the, with, with, with the people in the county, the, the, the people, uh, they said that the, uh, the business at the bar is going to go down. And, and, and the uh, cheating with the, uh, the women in town, that's, that's not going to happen anymore. And, and the gambler's pockets are going to be empty because he's not going to be giving them money anymore. And even his family has been saved and, and redeemed because his transformation was like that. Now, maybe your transformation was like that, and maybe your transla- trans- transformation is much more a process. Like, like God comes in and shows you a little bit at a time these impurities of your heart. And you then begin to uh, give permission to the Holy Spirit to begin to pull those weeds out to, to make it more pure. That, that process is very common. It's called sanctification. Big word, church word. That basically just means it's the process of getting clean. Folks, because you don't have to get clean in order to come to Jesus. You, you come to Jesus dirty as you are. And it's the Holy Spirit that begins to clean you up. Sometimes just like that. And sometimes it takes a little bit more time. You see, but it's all because before we walked with Jesus, we were concerned about us satisfying our own pleasures. But now, living in an upside-down kingdom means that we have a single-mindedness to do what God wants us. In fact, that's what purity means, is to have a single-mindedness. To say nothing else matters except for me doing what God wants in my life. What's the promise that Jesus gives? What's the blessing for those who are pure in heart? There in verse 8. Do you see it? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I always thought when I was growing up that that meant I got to go to heaven. I'll see God. Well, that's true. But I believe that Jesus is talking about something a little bit more broad In fact, because once you begin to say, my single desire is to do what God wants me to do, you will begin to see God at work in your life. All of a sudden, things will begin to happen. Things will begin to change. You go, I tried to change that for years on my own. And all of a sudden, God is doing something. He's showing up. And not only is He showing up to change your life, but He's showing up and working through you to make a difference in somebody else's life as well. And the pure in heart definitely see God at work. Lastly, there are the peacemakers. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God to reflect the DNA of our Lord and Father. It, it involves, it involves pe- people of God actively working to make peace. Because most of the problems that we face today are due to our own selfishness. If we truly are putting ourselves under the control of God, then we're going to stop focusing in on winning the battles, and we will be, begin to be motivated by our concern for the things that God cares about, His kingdom, the church, 
bringing in lost people into the kingdom. A peacemaker is not the same as a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper tries to keep warring factions apart. A peacemaker tries to bring them together. We are called ambassadors to take God's kingdom into this world, to be his representatives so that we can bring a peace together between God and man and between ourselves and man as well. Several weeks ago, Ethan, our youth pastor, shared with us some very wise advice from the book of James. James 1.19 says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Why? Because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Have you seen some angry people recently trying to do things on their own? How's that working for them? (laughs) You see, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So to be a peacemaker, we've got to put this verse into practice. We actually have to learn to listen to what other people are saying, especially those that we don't agree with. See, if you shut somebody out because you're trying to think of a clever comeback, or, or, or you think that they're just an idiot, you may miss God speaking through that person to show you something that you had never thought of before. Listening helps us better understand and not jump to incorrect conclusions. Number two, and this is I'm preaching to me, learn not to talk all the time. Learn just to shut up sometimes (laughs) instead of throwing out that zinger. Oh, I know you've been there where all of a sudden something comes in your mind and says, Oh, I could say this. (laughs) And then you got to stop and say, But if I say that, am I really bringing about peace? Or am I uh, adding fuel to the fire? Should I really say this? Or should I shut up? Should I really post this? Or should I refrain? No. Ah, something to think about is what I'm getting ready to say, either to somebody directly or online. Is that really going to bring about the righteousness of God? And then finally, learn to keep control over your anger. I can see myself many times working with middle schoolers, yelling at them, trying to tell them to be nice to each other. It's like, really, Trey? Really? You're screaming at us, and you want us to be good to each other. Well, where's, the, where's, where's the model there? Why is it important for you and I to be peacemakers? Well, do you realize, maybe some of you don't, but do you realize that this world is growing more hostile towards Christians? Have you, have you seen that maybe once or twice out there? It's a tragedy that they're pushing Christianity away from them because Christianity has the only answers to what they're looking for, the only hope, the only joy, the only peace that they really are craving. And and they're pushing it away. And yet, oftentimes, our response to that is hostility for hostility. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that's not creating peace. That's not making peace at all. I think our message of love and hope and peace and love sometimes gets muddled up because of our attitude. 
Because, because we've, we've adopted the same kind of hostility that the world has for us. Anytime I see an article that begins with the phrase, angry Christians, da 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 whatever, I, I, I hurt. I hurt on the inside. Is that really what has happened to the church? Have we sunk so low that our response to the world is not one of love, but of hate? Are you and I more fond of saying to people, you're going to hell, than it is, you know, Jesus loves you and offers you life and the Holy Spirit that can help you get out of the pit that you are in. I don't know about you, but out of those two ways, the first one does not seem very effective in winning people to the Lord. Look at the way that Jesus related to most people. He looked for ways to build a bridge. He looked for their pain. And then he sought to help at the point that they were hurting. He talked to them about their hunger and their thirst and their brokenness. And he spoke to them then about God's love and mercy. And if he had any harsh words to say, it was usually towards the religious elite that he was angry at. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. You know, as citizens of the upside-down kingdom, when we come to an understanding that we have spiritual poverty, that we can't do this on our own, and that our sin has broken our hearts because we have ruined our relationship with God, when we then decide to put ourselves underneath the control of our God, it changes our life. And that's exactly what God then wants us to take into this world because there are so many people whose lives need to be changed. It is in the case of those who live in God's upside-down kingdom that we are blessed, yes, but we're not just blessed for ourselves. We are blessed to turn right around and be a blessing to somebody else. That's at the very core of every disciple is this. You have a story. Your life has been changed by God's grace and mercy. You have been forgiven.